Thank you, Jerry. I want you to imagine with me, if you would, uh, a little girl's bedroom. And her good father comes into the room and sitting at the foot of the bed with her, begins to tell her who she is. He defines for her exactly who she is as his daughter. Clear definitions, beautiful and precious. And in these directives and definitions of who she is, she gains clarity of how she's to be directed on then how to live, defined and directed. The definition from the good father, her good father, gives her clarity and gives her confidence to be able to act with poise in the circumstances that she not only finds herself in in that moment, but as she ages and becomes a young woman. That's the heart that I pray we approach these few verses that our elder Jerry read for us a moment ago. That we would, with tender hearts, would seek to clearly understand how God defines us as believers. And from a clear reception of who we are, that we then would be able to have clarity in the directions of every one of our next steps. For we leave this place, every one of us to different circumstances, every one of us to different anxieties and different burdens and places of influence, different neighborhoods, different roommates, sweet mates. But we go with the same directives. We go with the same defining understandings of ultimately this is who we are. So the big idea this morning as we understand these verses, the big idea is that we are beloved, and as the beloved of God, the living stone, the living stone, that's Jesus, as we'll see, the living stone, He defines who we are and directs what we are to do. That's the big idea of the text today, that for believers, the living stone, Jesus, He defines who we are. He does. Nobody else has that authority, not even ourselves. Not our desires, not our culture, not our dreams. He has the authority as a living stone we are built upon as living stones and a spiritual house. He has the authority to define who you are. And therein, from that clear understanding and definition, He directs our next steps for all of life. That's the goodness we have in our words. So this morning as we break this down, we're going to note four clear directives that flow from a definition of who you are. And in this way, uh, I've not allowed room for fill in the blanks. Instead, I've manipulated our bulletin in such a way, this outline, that you'll see the bolded components are the definitions. This is who you are, as a reminder. Then you'll see the underlined components are the directives. This then, from that definition of this is who I am, this is what I'm directed to do in my present and every future circumstance that the Lord would have for me. So let's look first and foremost that we are living stones ever coming to Christ. Christ, our priceless and precious foundation. That's who we are. We are living stones. Now, last week in verse 3, as we finished off at our, our outdoor service, that was a sweet day, wasn't it? It was a sweet day. And we saw and we found that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And in that, if you remember, Peter is alluding to Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, here we see a clarifying component that who is the Lord that we've tasted of? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the sent one of the Father, who's taken on flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. We've tasted of Him, beloved. We know Christ, and therein we know God. And this is the definition that roots our reality. And He is understood and defined as the living stone and, in this text, as the cornerstone. See that from Psalm 118. He's the cornerstone. Uh, we sang about it a few moments ago. And what I want to do is I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 4. Flip over to Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles. Acts 4. If you don't have a, a Bible, you can follow along in a pewback Bible in front of you. Acts chapter 4. And one of the great joys of being able to, uh, to, to read Peter's letters is, is the book of uh, Acts gives us clarity of Peter's life and his teaching in the early church. Our women are studying through that in their midweek study. Ladies, uh, uh, you can always get involved with that or join in on next semester in that study. They're doing a great job walking through that book. And in Acts chapter 4, we see that Peter actually alludes to Jesus is the cornerstone. The same thing that he writes to encourage the believers who are spread out in uh, Roman, uh, present-day Turkey would be the equivalent of. And he writes and he encourages these believers, reminding them of the fact that they are living stones. Because of the living stone, not dead, but resurrected, the living stone that they're founded upon. And he ultimately is the cornerstone of their life and the gospel, the goodness of life that we have. So note how Peter, before he ever wrote this letter, alludes to this in this sermon of a testimony. So we see this interaction with Peter and John faithfully declaring the goodness of God after healing this man. Look what happens. Acts chapter 4, we'll just read verse 1. We'll start off there. It says, uh, and as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, uh, they came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Incredible. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, he is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the living stone. Now, we see a pattern unfolding already, don't we? Through this series in First Peter. There's a pattern that the believers who are experiencing certainly slander for their allegiance to Jesus. They're experiencing family tensions because of their allegiance to Jesus. They're experiencing social pressures because of their allegiance to Jesus. And soon, we know historically, the emperor will bring physical persecution because of their allegiance to Jesus. And Jesus tells them in this instructive way, he gives the example of Christ. We see exactly how Peter used this in, in this sermon in Acts chapter 4. Peter endured 
necessary suffering. Without the suffering of the cross, there was no resurrection. There is no salvation for us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ doesn't raise from the dead, we among all people ought to be pitied for this is all foolishness, meaninglessness. And yet Jesus had to endure that suffering. Now the suffering that He endured, the Jewish leaders and the Romans were responsible for it. It wasn't good. So we don't look back at it and say, oh, look, because it all worked out, it must have been good. No, that was sin and wickedness that took place. It's never good. So you in your life, as you experience the sins of other people, you're lied to, or any number of pains that you feel because of the sins of other people, that, and, and yet you end up coming to Christ. It doesn't mean that the sin that led to your suffering was good. We want to be very clear in rebuking that and distinguishing that. And Peter, as much, he lays the fact that they're accountable for God. Before the foundations of the world, it was ordained that Jesus would come where and when He came and do what He would do and ultimately lay His life down on the cross. The glory goes to God. And yet, the responsibility of them crucifying Him, that sin is upon them. But that suffering would take place and what would come after suffering and shame from the world? God would raise Him from the grave. He would be exonerated before man. Jesus rose from the dead, proclaiming and teaching all these things. And then He would ascend 40 days later, and He reigns and He intercedes for us right now. Intercedes for us as believers, and one day He will come again. And He will come in judgment when He returns. And He will come in full reign when He returns. And so as believers, this becomes a model for us. Now, Jesus' suffering is totally unique, so I want to make that clear, okay? We're not little Jesuses. We're not making atoning sacrifice. None of us are sinless in ourselves, right? There's a unique thing that Jesus done. It's in His atonement, the, the, the paying of dead and the absorbing of the wrath of God on the cross and the taking away of our guilt and shame that took place. That's totally unique. He's the cornerstone. He's the living stone. But we are called here living stones. Because we're built upon Him, we see a similar pattern in our lives as believers. We should expect, as Jesus expected, as, as He taught us through the Gospel of John, should a student think they're greater than their teacher? Should a servant think that they would deserve something different than their master? Well, our teacher and master endured suffering before glory. Temporary shame and discomfort before being exonerated in glory and receiving all glory, honor, and praise forever. So to believers, we should expect and endure that we are living stones ever committed to do what? What are we directed to do then? To be ever coming to Christ. Ever coming to Christ. This is our direction. He defines them. He says, as you come to Him, this is a key mark as, as believers and as a local church. You could take a group of people and slap the word church on it all you want. It doesn't become a church if it's not coming to the living stone who's Christ, right? That's a key definitional understanding. This is who we are. We are living stones built up into a spiritual house. What's it mean to be a spiritual house? It means that the Holy Spirit has brought us to life. When you hear the saying a lot of times, I'm spiritual but not religious, I think it's usually just slang for I don't want to wake up and go to church. But the understanding here that we have is that we are a spiritual house built up upon the foundation of Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. And He is not dead. He's not in the grave. He's defeated death and risen again. He's the cornerstone, the foundation of our life. 
So as a spiritual house built up upon Christ, and as living stones, we should expect, as we are those who are ever coming to Christ, we should not expect glory and honor and praise from an unbelieving world. We rather should expect suffering. We shouldn't beg for it, and we shouldn't put ourselves in positions acting foolishly to ask for it right? and, 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 and foolish behavior. But we should expect what Christ expected. And just as Christ worked purpose through this necessary suffering that experienced, so too we should know that God is going to work purpose through suffering. So what direction do you have? Here's counsel to you right now. Whatever circumstance you face, be ever coming to Christ right now. Whatever your circumstance, if you've got friction with a family member, or a friend, or a coworker or a neighbor, ask this question of counsel. What would it look like to bring this before Christ, the living stone and cornerstone who defines me? What will it look like? How will I behave if I'm bringing this circumstance upon Christ, the living stone that has made me a living stone? Okay, so that's the first point of counsel. Let's go second. Second, we look at verse 5 and 6, that we are a priesthood of believers. That's definitional. It's tough. It's definitional of who we are. We are a priesthood of believers. And this means, as a priesthood of believers, we are to offer up Scripture-trusting sacrifices before the world. Now, we're not really different than unbelievers in this unique way. Unbelievers live in their life for pleasure. They pursue pleasure. They have a different scale and gradient of pleasure, but they, have, they live for pl- pleasure and minimizing suffering and shame. As believers, however, we have received, as being born again, born from above, we have a new perspective, a new understanding by which we measure these things. And so before a person comes to Christ, they look at the idea of repentance and lordship to Jesus and trusting in Him and He leading their life and defining their life. They look at that and say, that's no fun. That's terrible. That sounds horrible. That's why many, before they come to Christ, say, I'll do that when I get older, after I've lived my life. But you know what happens when somebody becomes a believer? When somebody that's older in years that becomes a believer. And if you listen to the Midweek Podcast, you'll hear testimonies of our church membership, and many of them, and, and, and a couple we interviewed just two weeks ago. As they came to life, Christ later in life, and, and, uh, and, and, and her mom came to Christ near her deathbed. And you know what they all said? Why in the world didn't I come to Christ earlier? Now, why would they say that? Did they all of a sudden gain a totally different understanding? Did they all of a sudden love suffering? No. Did they all of a sudden stop having fun or longing for pleasure? No. But because they've been born from above, they have a new heart, new taste buds. And the sweetness of abiding in Christ is greater than any momentary pleasure or praise from the world that they ever do in their entire life. And that's the call to repentance and faith. If you don't know Christ, give your life to Christ and come to know the greatest pleasure in life that we could possibly have. And he defines them as who? A holy priesthood. Now, the priesthood of believers is a key Protestant belief. If you've come from a Roman Catholic background, you were not taught the priesthood of believers that we see in this text in the book of Hebrews. You weren't taught it. The priesthood of believers is understood in this way, in in two key ways. Number one, that, that... you have access directly to Jesus Christ. 
You don't have to come up here to my office in order to talk to the Lord. By faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, you have direct access to the Lord. As the priests were go-betweens between Israel and, uh, and the Lord. And in this way, the nation of Israel was a, a go-between to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. Because Christ did what He did, we have a permanent and perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And Jesus and His order is from this order of Melchizedek, this line over here, not the line from Aaron, where these priests would live and then they would serve and they would die. And another would, the next one in line, would, the chosen, another chosen one then from that line would live and serve and die. Jesus, He never dies. He's resurrected from the dead. There's not a, a new one coming in to take His spot. Secondly, the sacrifice that Jesus offered is perfect once and for all the righteous for the unrighteous. It's not being represented or reperformed. It's done. So there's not continual sacrifice of, of, of bulls or uh, goats or anything like this. It's been done. So He's our high priest who intercedes for us. He's the perfect sacrifice. And He intercedes for us now as believers. We go right to Him. But as we understand the priesthood of believers in this way as well, just as the priests were called to make beautiful sacrifices, holy sacrifices before the Lord, that's what the priests did. They weren't to be couch potatoes. They were to be active in the ministry that God had given them. And it served a unique and very special role, the nation of Israel, the people of God. And so we as a priesthood of believers, as he talks to these largely Gentile, non-Jewish audience, he says, no, this is who you are. You are a priesthood of believers now in Christ, by faith, by grace through faith in Christ. You are a priesthood of believers. And we offer in our lives living sacrifices. That's, that means we're, we're living our lives, we're suffering, we're living our lives as a thanksgiving offering to the Lord. Before a watching world, as we may endure seasons and situations of suffering and hardship, or fame and wealth and influence, the world is watching in how we steward that under the lordship and leadership of Christ. And so we offer our lives as thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. And look how he defines, and we understand this. He says, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices that are what? acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Believer, you can live in a way that's acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as an unbeliever today, as a sinner, dead in sin, if you will but repent and place your faith and trust in Christ, you can live in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to God through Jesus Christ who loves you. And as He is chosen and holy and precious, you, by being living stones, built up and filled by the Spirit, and upon Christ, you are chosen and holy and precious. That's good news. And how does Peter anchor this message? He quotes Scripture. Now, Peter, he's giving us Scripture. Scripture is authoritative, as we've spoken before, because of the nature of it. It's God-breathed. It's God's authoritative word for us. It's the final word of authority for us. And Peter, though an apostle, in giving them Scripture, he quotes Scripture. Because it's the ultimate authority. As believers then, as holy priests, we don't have to wonder, I wonder what will please God. No, we abide by His Word and we're ever repentant as the Spirit leads us and He convicts us and He provokes us and He comforts us. We're ever adjusting to pleasing lives before the Lord. 
as those who've been adopted by faith in Christ. So this is good news. So as we're directed, two points of counsel. We're ever coming to Christ and ever coming to Him, our cornerstone, the living stone, but we're also ever abiding in the Scriptures. So we add to that directive point in each of our circumstances. Question number one of counsel, what's it mean to take this situation before the Lord Jesus Christ? Question two now that should direct our counsel and understanding in our present circumstances and future circumstances we'll have two decades from now. What's God's Word say about this? How do we offer a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord before a watching world as He's made us a holy priesthood through His Son, Jesus Christ? Okay, third. Third. The living stone reveals those who will pay the cost of present shame at the gain of future honor or present honor at the cost of future shame. You'll notice this is both in bold and underlined. The living stone, that is Jesus, the resurrected one, He reveals those who will pay the cost of present shame at the gain of future honor. So Jesus reveals things. Who He is in the, the gospel, this good news message, this message that Stephen spoke about at the beginning of our service. God, man, Christ's response. Christ Jesus Himself, the living stone. He is a stumbling block. He reveals where people actually are. He reveals where people are. And people will do one of two things when they come to the Gospel message. They will either trip on it and curse the thing that they tripped over, the Gospel message, or they will come to it and repent and worship this living stone that they used to find off-putting, they now find defining and a blessing and joy greater than anything that this world could offer. So as an example, as he gives us these words, he says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What a message to a, a people who are experiencing suffering and slander by people over them. This applies so well. I'm so glad you're here today for a multitude of reasons. It's good to gather together. But hearing this sermon will make next week's sermon much more palatable. Because He defines us and He directs us for His glory. And He is the one, as we'll find soon, He's the one that possesses us. We're His possession. And what do we see? What happens with Jesus? People stump, stumble over Him. That's what Peter said in his sermon in Acts chapter 4. You crucified, but He's risen. And He's our hope. Christ Jesus, Christ crucified, our hope of glory. And He encourages the body of Christ. And He tells them what as they go on through suffering? You will not be put to shame. It is coming. What a message to realize. Why? Because the world is shaming the Christians in the first century because of their clear allegiance to Jesus. And Peter reminds them with the love of a father for his precious little daughter, listen, they shamed Jesus. They as unbelievers will shame you. But you who believe in Christ will never be put to shame. They'll be put to shame at His coming and for eternity. 
And it's better to endure temporary shame for eternal honor and praise. They see the gospel and they choose present honor and praise from an unbelieving world at the cost of eternal shame of the Christ who has risen, the living stone. So stay anchored on Him. Don't chase it. Don't be shamed off of the cornerstone. Anchor yourself. And not only that, but God in His glory uses our suffering. And here's an example I think that might be helpful for us. I want you to imagine tonight, you wake up around 1 o'clock and you're parched. So, so you're, you were asleep and you don't want to wake up totally. So you know what you do, right? You don't turn your lights on all the way as you go in the living room because then you're going to wake up for longer. That's what I do. So you talk yourself into saying, I've lived here long enough. I can walk through in the dark. And you do this move, and what does your pinky toe end up meeting? Your couch leg. It just crunches, and a totally irrational amount of pain comes into your body from your littlest toe. And you hit the ground, and you look with anger at what? At the couch leg. And you're so angry, and you're blaming the couch leg. The couch leg didn't do anything. That's just being a couch leg. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. It's holding up a couch. But with anger, you want to curse the couch leg. Why? Listen, do you really actually hate the couch leg? Are you going to get up that next day and saw off the couch leg and just have a three-legged couch? No way you would do that. That's crazy. You might move the couch, but you're not getting rid of it. It's not personal between you and the couch leg. So why are you mad at the couch leg? You're mad because you had a clear plan for your life. You were going to make your way into the kitchen, get a glass of water, and go about your life the way that you planned. Jesus Christ is the couch leg in this example. He stops people from going along on the way that they want to lead and lord their lives. And when they come into Him, they're filled with anger. But God may very well use that anger in the same way He did to us. As we see the true reality of our shame in our situation, in our hopelessness, and the death and the wrath of God that abides on us, to bless us with repentance and faith. And we surrender our lives and we're humbled in our pride as we see the route that our life was on. For we weren't simply walking to the kitchen to get a glass of water. In reality, we were walking to the pits of God's wrath in hell. But in God's love for us, we stumble over Christ. And so what does Jesus do with the church that He spread out through Turkey? What does Peter remind the church? The Lord has spread you out. And as we're going to see next week, He has spread some of you out in His sovereignty as servants and slaves. And here's how you're directed to respond. He spread some of you out as believers. These first-generation Christians, as the gospel came, one spouse in many homes, some, some we know from Acts, some the whole household converted. But in many homes, only the wife converted. And the husband did not. God didn't make a mistake in putting a couch leg there. And then all of these people, 
the, the, the Roman government will trip over the citizens as a couch leg. And just as you experienced anger towards the couch leg, the government acted appropriately with anger towards the citizens who serve this higher Lord, Jesus. And it caused spouses to trip over spouses and masters to trip over servants. But all of this is for God's glory because temporary shame from the world is worth it if God may by His glory turn that person into another couch leg. See, all of us before we came to Christ, some of us and many of us in this room were blessed by a mom or a dad or a grandma or grandpa that was a couch leg. And and as a child, we may have stumbled against them consistently and and we may have looked at other people's parents and said, but they're way cooler. They can do all these things. And yet that stumbling by God's grace brought us to Christ. And that faithfulness brought us to Christ because it became a constant testimony, a constant stumbling block that brought friction in the relationship. And so what would the church hearing this message and what should we hear this today as God's sovereignly placed us in East Texas, in Nacogdoches County for such a time as this, it should mean we should not take any suffering as personal. We shouldn't take people shaming us or us abiding in God's Word, offering thanksgiving sacrifices and how we live and guiding our life. We shouldn't take it personal. Rather, we should pray for those who stumble over us. And we shouldn't let people stumble over us, as we'll see next week, because we're being jerks. They should stumble over us because we're so bonded to Christ that when they stumble over us, we say, God bless you. And that's what the church in Turkey is going to experience when eventually the government ramps up and they begin to experience physical suffering and persecution. He tells them, don't return reviling for reviling. Don't take up arms and strike them back. You return the shame that they're giving you with blessing. And in their striking you as they see your otherworldly blessing them, they will be forced to look to Jesus, the highest authority that's even above the emperor. Jesus is the definitional one. If you don't know Christ, I want you to think through your life right now and think of all the little couch legs God's placed in your life. But unless the Lord gives you a new heart, and the Lord gives the growth, but thank Him, God, thank You for these people that have been faithful witnesses. I want that. Will You forgive me of my sin and lead my life? I give my life over to You, Jesus. I want to worship You and praise You no matter what. That's the goodness of our God. Amen? That's who you are, a believer. Defined as those who will pay the cost of present shame at the gain of future honor. We look fourthly in verses 9-12. through 12. We are His possession. We are His possession. And as those who are the possession of the living stones, the Lord Jesus, we are those who proclaim to one another that's fellow believers, and to the watching world with words and works, all that God has done for us on behalf and through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we do? We're proclaiming ones. That's what we're directed to do. So additional counsel in our circumstances, regardless of where you find yourself today, here's counsel. Take that situation, take that relationship, take that future job prospect, whatever it is, Take it before and upon the precious stone, the Lord. 
Take it before the Lord in Scripture and prayer. And finally, take it to the Lord with proclamation of His goodness. Our prayer should be. There's nothing wrong with praying that the Lord will end seasons of suffering or hardship. There's nothing wrong with that. But as believers, we're also called to have a clarity that our next step is to proclaim, Lord, how do I proclaim your lordship and your kingship in this suffering, in this circumstance? How do I know other believers well enough to proclaim the Lord to them in a loving way, in an encouraging way, in their hardship? Look what he says in verse 9. He gives us three defining understandings. There are at least three. He says, but you are a chosen race. This is echoing chapter 1, verse 1. Remember what he called them? Peter referred to the church as what? There's no controversy with these words. They're beautiful words. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. And that's what we have here. He tells them again, you are a chosen race. Just as the living stone that the Lord chooses, chosen and precious, believers are chosen and precious in the Lord. Not because of what we've done, but because of what the Lord has done. Because the living stone is so great, He has a people for His own possession. Praise God, that gets to be us. Praise God, we get to be stumbled across. Praise God for that. We're a chosen race, and also He calls them what? A, echoing what we saw earlier, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. And so the royal priesthood of people who are still ethnically Gentiles, non-Jews, but now they're made into a royal priesthood. Why? Because they've been called out of darkness, he says here, into marvelous light. They're a royal priesthood because they're, because they're awesome? Because they're super skilled and gifted? No. They're, they're made into a royal priesthood because they've received, he says, great mercy. That's echoing chapter 1. Because the great mercy that God has lavished upon us. We're recipients of the great mercy of God. So we should never be boastful and proud in ourselves, but we boast in Christ. And Peter gives us that explanation when he goes through his history as well, or Paul does. He calls them a holy nation. Romans 10 to 11 gives us clarity that God will work a greater purpose. Even in our suffering now today, we have ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles that place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're made one body in the new covenant made by Christ's blood that we're recipients of. But the Lord is bringing the fullness of Gentiles to faith. And a day will come yet future when all the fullness have come in, when God will bring national Israel to repentance and faith in Christ. And they will repent in this incredible way and recognize that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah that they had crucified. The scene that we see play out here in Acts chapter 4 with 5,000 will ultimately lead to multitudes more in the days yet future. This is who we are in Christ. The people proclaiming His glory. Now there is in the grammar, confession, there is some disagreement. Is the proclaiming here taking place that believers are proclaiming Christ? Is that proclaiming only in the congregations or is He talking about an outward proclamation? I don't really think you can know entirely. But I also don't think in this situation we can go wrong by saying it's probably both, right? Inevitably, functionally. As we proclaim Christ to each other in fidelity to the Lord as the mercy-knowing people... We're to show mercy to the world. As we receive the goodness of the gospel, the truth of the living stone, and we anchor each other based upon the definitions that God has given us, we're directed to proclaim that goodness 
to a watching world. Just as the priests were living in a way, offering thanksgiving sacrifices to a watching world, we as believers are proclaiming these truths to a watching world. Do you know who you are today? Do you know how the Lord views you? Precious. Believer. Forgiven. Beloved. Living stones directed to proclaim the glories of the living stone. I hope these next steps, these three next steps, will give us clarity and even more practicality on how we can do that today. Number one, next steps. Over lunch, you'll be eating in just a little bit. Over lunch, share with, these, with each other of these four elements, these defining and directional elements. Which of these four do you find personally most encouraging today? And secondly, which of these four do you find most challenging? As you review back over this sermon for lunch and your conversation, which of these do you find most challenging and which do you find most encouraging? Secondly, I'm going to ask you to formally commit yourself to a local church body. The Grace Bible is not the only faithful congregation of God's Word. We're one of many that Nacogdoches County have been blessed with. But I would encourage you, if you have not committed yourself and joined a local church, join one. Plant roots in a local church. Don't be formally embarrassed to admit that. Here's a multitude of reasons I would tell you this. Well, one very clearly I'll give you right now. Is if you just hop around in different places, you deprive yourself of the sanctifying, the building up in our faith ability to watch other believers suffer. You deprive yourself of that reality. You deprive yourself of the ownership of seeing a new batch of college students coming in and walking across the room and pursuing them. And then when they graduate and go off, you, you miss out on the mournfulness. Yeah, you see, oh, there's less students up there. They're gone. It's Christmas break. But when you know their situations and you're praying for them, knowing that a number of the college students will be going to home with unbelieving family members, then near Christmas you're praying for them that they would be winsome because you know them. You get to see what it is to have family members and to know older brothers and sisters as weeks become months and months by God's grace become decades. You get to know what it is to watch those little kids grow up. That's a really high, I guess. I don't know if there's any seven-footers, but they get to be about this big, okay? <laughs> this, this keeps going. But you get to see that kid in the nursery. You get to see that kid graduate and go off and listen. It is true. Not a month has gone by, not, not a week has gone by in the last five or six weeks that I have not been meeting individually with one of our older members in our church, grandparent age or parent age, in which I've just asked them at some point, I always ask people I meet with, how can I be praying for you? And every single situation that a person has shared with me their heartbreak over their unbelieving child or unbelieving grandkids. They're clearly not walking with the Lord. Now let me tell you this. Sure, I may not have that if I wasn't a pastor. But if I was a member committed to a local church for that much time to have that much credibility with somebody, you better believe that has changed the way I've prayed and viewed and looked at people in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It shapes you. 
and it's built my faith up in ways that nothing I can read can do. That's what God does in our lives when we commit ourselves to local bodies. There ain't no perfect body. There ain't no perfect congregation. I've got to find one. But it gives you clarity in how to pray and encourage one another. It gives you encouragement as you see others suffer and cling to Christ. That's the, and as your heart may be tested and strained, as you experience the pain of that perhaps wayward child or grandkid kicking against you, stumbling over you, you trust and you pray knowing that God can use those stumblings as a constant faithful witness of the Lord who leads your life. Isn't that worth our life? Stephen has chosen a song that could not have been better selected for this text in our heart and our prayer life today. If you don't know Christ, at the end of the service, after the service is over, we'll be up here. We want to be able to pray with you to trust Him, to commit your life to Him. Or if you just need prayer today, we want to be here to pray for you and encourage you. But would you stand with me as we sing glorious praises to our King.